Reading today from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. Remember that at that time you, the Gentiles, were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Good morning. Good to be with you all today. Appreciate all the, uh, appreciate our visitors. We've got family here and uh, friends from the community. We just appreciate always your taking a little chunk of your valuable time. We, we only have so much time. It's probably the most valuable thing we have. And you've chosen to, to share it with us. And we hope you've been edified and blessed in some way. Um, over the past few weeks, uh, we've been talking about how being ministers of reconciliation, which is our 2023 theme in terms of our teaching and preaching, ministers of reconciliation, how that really is just uh, the natural outgrowth, the sort of obvious outgrowth of the whole biblical story. The Bible has this overarching narrative that stretches from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, whose descendants would bless all nations, to the new creation, which will be populated by every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. So that shows this, this language about all the nations. And if you read through the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah are full, chock full, of these things that we often read over about all the nations coming to the new Jerusalem. God's going to gather in not only wayward Israel, but all the nations. The kings of the Gentiles will bring this and that to the new Jerusalem and and, and bow at the feet of the Lamb, Revelation 21 and 22. That's really a, a big biblical theme. And it stretches from the language of the promised Abraham to the very conclusion of the Bible and the, the story of God, the story of the world. And all this shows us that God had always planned to gather, to welcome in to himself, into fellowship with him, all people groups. The problem is that human beings have throughout history stubbornly practiced the opposite. We raised it to a, a high art, honestly. Even Christians, many examples throughout history would attest to this, have accepted group chauvinism, us versus them thinking, racism, intergroup alienation as just normal. The gospel doesn't touch that. It's about social and political stuff. The gospel is about something else, about individuals getting right with God. It doesn't touch all that stuff out in the world. We've tried to show the last couple of weeks that that is incredibly unbiblical, not mildly unbiblical. And you remember how long and thick last week's sermon was? I cut out stuff. Uh, I promise you. And the week before that I did. 
And that's the world's norm, though. That's what we do. That's what humans, and from a worldly perspective, do. That's what we think of as just, that's the way it is. God's people are charged with resisting this. And offering in the stead of that worldly way, what Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 calls a ministry of reconciliation. He calls the whole gospel a ministry of reconciliation. Now, what we want to do today and next week is kind of turn our attention toward what that means within the church. What does it mean to be a minister of reconciliation within the church? How does the church do that, and what is the significance of the church's doing that? So today we turn our attention to the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. If you want to uh, turn in your Bibles in the New Testament to Ephesians, uh, I've got a lot of this on the screen. I'm not sure I have all of it. But you know, Ephesians is basically about the church of Jesus. The whole book is about the church of Jesus. What God did in chapter 1 through 3, and then by virtue of that, to, to create the church, and then by virtue of that, chapter 4 through 6, the second half, how then should we live? And in this uh, book, which is about the church, basically we're reading about the people God called to himself through the gospel of Jesus so that when Paul and other New Testament writers address the church, they're basically presenting to us God's idea of what it means to be human. All sorts of ideas have come forth in the, you know, since the dawn of time, since the creation of humanity, about what it means to be human, what humanity is, what it means to have a society, what civilization should look like, how people should relate, why are we here. Philosophers and just ordinary people have been sort of winging it the whole time. Meanwhile, God is, through His Word, and ultimately exhibited in the model of the church, what his idea of how those people made in his image, after all, should think and live, how they should act, how they should relate to one another. The, the church is God's new society. I want you to notice this phrase here. His purpose, Ephesians 2.15 says, was to create in himself one new humanity, as NIV puts it. That's what God is doing. That's what the church is. It's one new humanity. And that's uh, the, the, the counterculture that was built around Jesus Christ. It is the new society built around the gospel. One new humanity, nothing less than that. It's a, it's a, it's a high calling. It's, uh, it's pretty radical to say, I'm going to create humanity again. But that's what we read about in Ephesians. God does just that in Jesus Christ. What does that have to do with reconciliation? What does that have to do with the way we interact and relate to one another and what we exhibit out to the community around us as a church of God's people? So what we want to talk about this morning then is this idea of one new humanity, the church as God's ideal society, his ideal human civilization, if you will. And as God's one new humanity, the church is first a group of people who are rooted in reconciliation. Rooted and grounded in reconciliation permeated, suffused by reconciliation, shot through with reconciliation. I'm just thinking, I, I, I struggle with the titles for my three points today, the headings. Um, so there's, there's 15 for number one. Um, just popping into my mind. But the idea is that you don't really have the church without this ethos and this dynamic of reconciliation. That's what it is. Okay. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, make this point, I think. And I want you to notice here as we read this, the emphasis Paul places on reconciliation. Just the verbs and the terms used here. He says in Ephesians 2, 
beginning in verse 12, remember that at that time, you, that is the Gentiles in context, were separate from Christ, but look, you've been brought near, verse 13. He says, Christ himself is our peace. Well, that's a reconciliation word. You were at conflict. There was strife and alienation. Now you're at peace. The two groups have been made one, verse 14 says, because he has destroyed the barrier. These are all words of reconciliation, right? He has made peace, verse 15, and then in verse 16, he finally uses the Greek word for reconcile in one body to reconcile those who become the church. So I think it's fair to say that's about as redundant as you could possibly be. That's basically a list of synonyms for reconciliatory talk. There was alienation, now there's reconciliation. There, there was estrangement, now there's unity. There was conflict, now there's peace. There was a dividing wall, now there's a bridge. However you want to put it. Something else I want you to notice I think is extremely important, and really it's the essence of this first point, is that both reconciliation to God, what we've called in the past vertical reconciliation, what, what we often think the gospel is only about, just individuals getting saved, that's the centerpiece of it, but both that and reconciliation between estranged peoples happen, listen to me, together. In Ephesians, they are worded as if they are inextricably connected. Here's what I'm talking about. Notice this. What's highlighted and underlined here. His purpose, God's purpose in Christ, was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God. He doesn't say He reconciled a bunch of individuals, and then if they got around to it, they started working on these interpersonal problems. These social problems. This us-them thinking. No. If we're going to take the Bible, we always say we're, we're trying to be just, just Bible. No creeds, just the Bible. Here you go. <laughs> we're going to take the text seriously or not. The language of Ephesians 2 is, it began with these two groups coming together as one body and one motion as, they, as they're reconciled to God. It's, it's, it's inextricably connected. It's a single, inextricably connected action. Both reconciliation to God and reconciliation between people groups happen together. That's the whole context. You know, we read, we're going to get to this next week. Ephesians 4 talks about there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all that, the unity of, of the church. And that's where we're going. But in the context of Ephesians, it's backlit. The, the context is basically Jew-Gentile. It's ethnic strife. The dividing wall of hostility. Making peace. That's when he says, on the heels of that is when he says there is one Lord, one faith, one body, and, all, and you need to you know, be diligent to make, make sure you're being unified. In the context of these ethnic, national, tribal sort of uh, you know, forms of conflict and strife that had always characterized the world. One new humanity. How? Because in one body he reconciled both Jew and Gentile to them to God. I just want us to take the language of the scripture here seriously. And, and that's why I'm saying God's one new humanity, the church is something that's rooted in reconciliation. It's not peripheral to the discussion. It's at the heart of it. That's how it happened. We're constituted by reconciliation and we should be characterized by a spirit of reconciliation. Otherwise, how are we going to be, as Paul writes elsewhere, ministers of reconciliation? So you don't really have the church without reconciliation. It's the DNA of the church. Right? 
Do you know the word sine qua non, without which not, the essence of a thing? You don't, you don't have that. It's, it's the fundamental requirement to have church, the called out to God. They're, they're, the calling out is a reconciliation process, which 1A is to God, 1B though is to everybody else. I loved it when Don did his Lord's Supper talk. He, he spe specified the point that it's, a, it's not just about you being unified to God when you eat the supper. It's the corporate aspect too. In fact, a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, we read the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? But hold on. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. 1A, 1B. Vertical, horizontal. What are the two great commands? Love God, right? And love God. Just make sure you love God and you got saved individually. We are so individualistic, we can't even see how communitarian the Bible is. As I've said before, three-fourths of the times the word, we read the word you, it's y'all, in the Bible, in the New Testament. Three-fourths. Only one-fourth is talking about individuals. So there is this idea that that's out there that I think we have to talk about and, and harp on because it's, it's, it's in our culture. And that is that none of that other stuff about conflict between groups, that doesn't really matter, that's peripheral. It doesn't sound like that here. The DNA of the church of Jesus Christ, of this one new humanity, is to be people of reconciliation. And my question is, is that part of our DNA? Is it? Let me give you an illustration. I want you to think of the place in our national culture and history that, that the term, the concept of freedom holds. Or if you like, liberty. How important is freedom to American culture and identity and history? Oh my goodness. It's, it's, if Madison Avenue uses it on stickers and t-shirts, you know it's arrived. It's in our founding documents. Right? I mean, just the slightest thing, we're, we've got to be free. You know, it's like we're, we're upset. It's an, it's an idol almost. It is, you don't understand American culture. I love freedom too, by the way. I'm not anti. But, right, if somebody thinks they can understand American culture from another place and they don't understand the priority that we place, this almost like this obsession, this preoccupation with liberty or freedom, they don't get us, right? It's not peripheral. It's part of the DNA. It's the warp and woof of the national fabric and you don't have America without it it's not something that you can understand about the national the nation's ethos without it so I I don't think we should be able to think about the church this one new humanity without having an ethos of reconciliation that, that's the that's the ambient uh, sort of air we're breathing that's that's who we are this idea of reconciliation it's what constitutes it constitutes constituted us and it's also what should characterize it all right so next week we're going to continue on this and pick up Ephesians' emphasis on unity. And I want to just say one thing here. Reconciliation and unity. What are, what are, those are two different words, slightly different concepts. I want to suggest to you that they very much travel together. What is the relationship between reconciliation and unity? Well, both, both of these are states of being that prioritize oneness, right? Oneness. Um, you can see the word one in unity and unified. You ever played Uno right universe there's just one it's everything whatever about multiverses the universe used to just mean everything you could find you can't find five more because it's all part of it whatever 
Um, it's just semantics to me. But anyway, there's one new humanity. Isn't that interesting? There's only one humanity that God's making in Christ. So clearly, things like, you know, if that has been, if that's been um, threatened or damaged, if that oneness is, is not what it ought to be, if something or someone is chipping away at it, then the gospel of Christ seeks to restore a oneness or a unity that has been damaged. Whether it's between humans and God or also among estranged human groups. So all these forms of chauvinism, racism, classism, you know, it's our language is the only one, you know, only domestic people, not immigrants. Leviticus 19 says a lot about that, by the way, in this chapter on loving your neighbor. Very curious uh, where many Christians have arrived at in our culture, given what that says in this paradigmatic passage on loving your neighbor and applies it to them and the, the response to Israel and says, don't forget you were immigrants. I am the Lord. It grows out of the character of Yahweh. When it's damaged, it's got to be repaired. That's reconciliation. But there's also main, maintenance of unity. And maintaining unity grows out of the same impulse as restoring unity. So those really do travel together. That is, unity and reconciliation. Okay, second point this morning. As God's one new humanity, the church is also, we need to think about it in terms of the biblical story and, and where it, where it uh, comes. Like it, it's, it's basically the climax in some ways, the culmination, as far as we're concerned, of God's master plan for reconciliation. We could say, well, what, what about the new heavens, new earth? Well, but yes... But we are called new creation as well in 2 Corinthians 5. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creature or a new creation, depending on the version. So that's already started. So I'm going to view those as all of a piece for this purpose. Even though we live in the tension of, you know, the principalities and powers are still doing their thing, they're evil, and we, we have the now, not yet, tension of the kingdom of God and so on. But the church is the culmination of this master plan, this eternally... Uh, crafted, universally applicable plan to reconcile everything in the cosmos to God and to do it through Christ. Our reconciliation is part of that story. That's what I'm trying to get across here. In many ways, it's the culmination of this master plan, this master story. It's all about reconciliation. Let's go back to the beginning of Paul's letter to Ephesus now. This one, every time I read this, it gives me like the heebie-jeebies, because I, I went to Florida College and took freshman Bible, and my teacher was Farrell Jenkins, Cherise too. Some of you might have met him. Um, and part of his, he loved, you'd have to memorize stuff. So we had to memorize, we had to memorize Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Yeah, it's a lot. And, and go to his office and recite it and, until you got it right. So this gives me a little bit of trauma still. There's like, Paul, and, and by the way, we talked about Paul's run-on sentences last week. Verses 3 through 14, there's only like four sentences in the whole thing. Paul is like not into punctuation. And of course, in the Koine Greek, there's no punctuation anyway. You can't even, you have to interpret it to figure out where the sentences start, begin and start. But I want you to notice here how cosmic, how, how much of a master plan this is. Again, the letter's about the church, but this is how he starts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, that's the church, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
goes through this many different facets and aspects of this plan, this choosing of us, and how it re redounds to the glory of God, the praise of His grace, and so on. But look at verse 10. It's one big thought. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite, reconcile, bring back to oneness where it had been fragmented. All the centrifugal forces are reversed. It's now centripetal around Christ. To unite all things in Him, that's Jesus, Things in heaven and things on earth. He's not talking about just you. He's talking about all us. Ultimately, us related to them, whoever that is. It's different. We're, we're somebody's them. And even the cosmos. This is why in Revelation 21 and 22, you have explicitly, you know, this vision explicitly picking up these phrases from Isaiah about the whole new order of the world. New heavens, new earth. Lions lying down with lambs, right? A tree of life is there. There's, there's no sun anymore because God is its light. The nations are there being healed by the tree of life. The curse is no longer. There's a cosmic renewal. He calls it new heavens, new earth. And so that's what this is talking about. The plan to unite everything that spun out of control in the garden with our sin, with human sin, and to bring it back to God, the hub of it all. That's what the church is. We're part of that. We're the culmination, I think, in many ways of that. And this plan to unite all things in Jesus was a plan that emanated from the mind of God himself. It wasn't something that anyone saw coming or probably even thought possible. It was a product, as Ephesians 3 puts it, of God's wisdom. Read with me now this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, when you read this, and I'm talking about the idea that you could actually bring Gentile and Jew together, people who were that much at odds. And think of all the other rivalries and dissensions between people groups in our world. Right? Just think about our political landscape, for goodness sake. You think that's an intractable division? Jew-Gentile was worse. And he said, Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery? What was the covered or concealed thing that has now been revealed? The cover's been taken off, and it's, it's out there to see. Paul says, I wrote about it, and you can now understand that revelation, the, the disclosing of what was once a mystery. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Notice this. This mystery, verse 6, is that the Gentiles, the nations, the ethnoi, Greek word, the ethnics, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So Paul is preaching what was, without God's revelation, inaccessible. It was, a, it was covered. It was a mystery. This eternal plan was not something that came from the mind of humanity. And so there's a little side note here. There's a big difference between social activism, the sort of beheaded social activism, which sort of still animated by the spirit of Jesus, but the head's been cut off, it's secular or something like that, and, and a kind of socially aware, relating to other people, activism even, that has Jesus as its animating force. The head's still attached to the body. 
think a lot of the good reformism that's happened, at least in our part of the world in the last couple hundred years, is often a kind of, uh, you know, it's running on the fumes. It's, it's the snake still twitching with its head cut off. You got the, the, the sort of Christ-like ideas and ideals, but there's no Jesus. There's a big difference between the two. We wouldn't have come up with this. And that's where we got it. That you could actually have unity between these people groups who just hated each other and feared each other and suspected each other and prejudged each other and taught their children the same thing generation after generation after generation and then went to church and said everything's good. Not according to this Bible. Nope. We need to take seriously all the texts of Scripture and not cherry-pick the part that we were told mattered and ignore all the rest. Neither did we, as human beings, have the power to execute such a plan as God's eternal plan. It's not just that we wouldn't have thought of it. It's not just a wisdom problem, it's a capacity problem. Ephesians 2.10 says, We, the church, are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God, uh, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may remember the preceding verses here. He says that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of our own doing, not of our own creative activity. So don't boast. But he also says we're His workmanship created for good works. I want you to focus in on the word workmanship. This is from the Greek word, which uh, poima, which uh, is used two times by in the, in the New Testament. Once is here, once is over in Romans 1.20. You could basically translate this word creation. In Romans 1.20, does anybody remember what Paul's talking about there? It's a, a famous verse when you're teaching apologetics or evidences. The things that are made attest to God's power and divinity so that the, the unbelievers are without excuse. Even before you have the Bible, you should at least be able to determine that there is a being who is incredibly powerful and divine just from the things, the created things that are out there. There's this exquisiteness of the, of the universe. Same exact word here. The things God made is the same as workmanship. There it's talking about the physical creation. So what I'm suggesting is this is kind of new creation language. And in fact, if you look at the very next word, the verb, we are His creation, His workmanship, His things that are made, created in Christ Jesus. That's actually kitzo, which is the, the Greek word for create, which I think 80% of the time in the New Testament is talking about the physical cosmos, what God created. Did a brief look, I don't remember the exact percentage, but something like that. Eight, nine times out of ten, this word is referring to creation. Only here he's saying... We are His creation. This is new creation language. It's Paul. That should not shock us. We're His creation. The new humanity would not have come from the mind of man or the power of man, but only from the mind and creative capacity of the divine one. So we are the culmination as God's new humanity of this universal scheme, this plan crafted before time began to draw all things in unity, to reconcile all things to God through Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the church is God's model for reconciliation. 
We as his one new humanity have a revelatory role, if you will. We're a sign pointing to another possibility, another way of being human, something that in God's good future is coming. And in a sense, he's saying through the church, it's already here. Look at it. Look at my people. They're they're making something known. They're revealing something. They're modeling a kind of behavior, a kind of love that transcends all of these forms of strife, racism, ethnocentrism, whatever it is. They all start in our heart. We're going to talk about that next week. But man, they're as old as the hills, and they have a Christian version, every one of them, a million times over in religious history. <laughs> Sometimes Christians are the worst at it, honestly. Religious, not just Christians, religious people. It gets a, a divine patina kind of put on it, and then everybody feels all self-righteous, and like, of course we're right. God's on our side. Worse than nothing. Right? How do we get past all that? By thinking of ourselves as God's one new humanity and realizing that we have this responsibility to model reconciliation and unity to the rest of the world, to those around us. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, Paul says this, For to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, Ephesians 3, 8, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light For everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? What's the mystery? That he's going to include all the nations. Said it to Abraham, but got forgotten. Even the Israelites often forgot it, right? They're supposed to be a light to the nations. Remember Jonah's response? Hey, go tell these poor Assyrians that they're going to get nuked. And I don't want to do that. I'm a merciful God. Even the cows don't know what's going on, you know. And Jonah says, I'm going to go the opposite way. Why? That book's about chauvinism. That's what it's about, ultimately. It's not just about fish swallowing people. That's, a, you know, that's the children's version. The adult version is it's about racism and chauvinism and people thinking we're the us, they're the them. I don't like Assyrians. Let Nineveh fry. Even when God gives his attention and he goes back in, you know, after the fish spits him out and he, he goes to Nineveh, At the very end of the book, Jonah's pouting because God spared him. I knew you would be gracious. And that's how God's people have often been. Thank you for being gracious to me. I don't need to be gracious to those kind or those kind. They're scary and dangerous and different. And we just lean into this worldly sinful thing that the gospel in part came to solve. That's why when Abraham is called by God to bless the world with salvation, he also says it's for all the nations. Look at this, look what I have outlined, I mean uh, underlined here. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. This is why I say we have a revelatory role, a, a role of modeling something exhibiting a kind of behavior that the world doesn't see typically. We're making known God's plan. What plan? This mysterious idea that he could bring in the nations to himself and tear down dividing walls of hostility and make peace where there was conflict and love where there was fear. Does perfect love cast out fear or is it okay to fear certain people? 
They might be fearing you, by the way. I think perfect love casts out fear. Period. Are we making it known? God's wisdom, His new humanity is demonstrating something. It's modeling something, something and namely that is His wisdom. And let's first of all notice the, the audience in this context, and then we'll, we'll broaden this out. We are making it known to whom? To these curious entities called the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You may have different words there. There's three or four different Greek words that are often... This is very much a part of Paul's uh, cosmic outlook, right? He often talks about the, uh, the world rulers of this present darkness, the cosmic powers, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. He, they're, they're, they're a little collage of words he uses interchangeably. And it sounds like they're, they're sort of the minions of, of, of Satan working in some way, given, uh, if you go back to the Psalms and other places in the Old Testament, it appears given certain dispensations of, of areas to control and for the shalom of the universe, but like went rogue, rebelled, and are sowing things like chaos and sin and all the stuff that we call worldliness and sin. They're behind it in Paul's you know, mental world. But we, as the one new humanity, are making known to those entities the manifold wisdom of God. And these rulers and authorities in heavenly places are the mortal enemies of humanity. In Ephesians 6, when he talks about the panoply of God, the armor of God that we're to don every day as we go out to fight the enemy, he reminds us that we aren't wrestling against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, 12, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Same idea. That's our nemesis. It's those entities who are the mortal enemies of humanity. These rulers and authorities, these cosmic powers, play a huge role in leading humanity into sin. And they have a religious version of it. That's no problem for them. You think Satan is intimidated by Pharisees? You know, who are so, you know, commendable in many ways. Josephus talks about that. Paul says, I was a, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Jesus says, you know, they do some good things, you know. We sometimes caricature them. But even that kind of would-be orthodoxy can get hijacked by Satan. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were all once dead in the trespasses of our, and, and sins in which we once walked, following, notice this phrase, the course of this world, the norm, the default path. But that came, that emanated from the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work, at work in the sons of disobedience. So the prince of the power, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. He's kind of in charge, for the most part. That's why he calls him the prince of, of, of the earth several times. Not ultimately in charge, you know, the real ruler has landed, you know, and, and, he, and we're his people that he's called to infiltrate the evil and to show a different way. We're the one new humanity. But he's, he's the prince of the air. And, and the course of this world that people just unthinkingly adopt, sometimes feeling righteous while they do, is what gets us into trouble. And, and we, as the one new humanity, the church, 
are modeling for God, making known to these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers that there is another, there's a new chief in town and there's another way to live, another way to be human. So how can the church rise above this to model something different? The church is the body of Jesus Christ now sits with him, Paul writes, above these powers. Right now, they were conquered. They're allowed some free reign for a while apparently, but they were conquered. Their, their fate is sealed. And they were conquered by his death and resurrection and now sit below his feet. But I want you to notice in Paul's writing, we sit with him positioned above them. His feet are on their corpses, in a sense, and we're with Christ above them. That's what he says here in Ephesians 1 and 2, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, that's us, the fullness of Him who fulfills all in all. Now notice chapter 2, verse 6. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be beholden to the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present age that give us the course of this world that leads to death, sin and trespasses and death. And what is it that we... This reconciled and reconciling new humanity, what, uh, what specifically is it that we are modeling? I want to zero in on one more word here and then we'll close up. Notice again Ephesians 3 verse 10. Through the church, the called out ones, that is us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and so on. Zero in on the word manifold. You may have a different English word in your translation, but many of them use this word manifold. And it comes from a compound Greek word which has these two pieces. Poly, we know that one. That just means many, right? Like, you know, Polycarp, the church father, he was just many carps, many fish. Just kidding. Nerdy language joke. You know, poly, uh, polystyrene, poly, I, I can't even think of poly words right now. Polyglot, person who speaks many tongues. Uh, polymath, the person has lots of different expertise, math, yeah. Uh, poly means many. But the second word here, poikilon, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, is the idea, and I've got the definition there, many colored, dappled, like when, when you've got dappled light and there's different colors, diversified, manifold. And I thought, I wonder if that's the same word that the Greek text of the Old Testament uses of Joseph's coat of many colors. I looked in it, and, and LXX is just the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Genesis 37.3. Sure enough, exact word. God's wisdom is multifaceted. It's manifold just in the generic sense that it goes all sorts, it, it transcends anything we can even imagine, right? There's a strong chance, though, here, given the Jew-Gentile thing, that he's, he's saying a little bit something more specific than that. That he is talking about the many different colors, shades, types, however, however you want to put it, of humanity that are brought into the church. The church is a, a kind of coat of many colors, in a sense. 
something we wear. Right? We're told to put on, in Colossians and Ephesians, this is language of dressing and under, getting the old man and then putting on the new, the new clothing of Christ. We're covered in his blood. It's interesting to me that he uses this word, poikilond, many-colored, dappled, diversified manifold, to talk about this new humanity. This new humanity, by including so many shades and groupings and colors of humanity, all reconciled together as one in the church, is nothing less than living proof of the wisdom of God and the power of God. All right, don't call that liberal or conservative. Call it gospel. Rise above the framework that people give you on the news. Think from the Bible out. Have the boldness and the conviction in Jesus to do that. In his commentary on Ephesians, Frank Thielman writes, The church is unified across ethnic lines and is a newly created human being. By its very existence as a unified body, then, the church makes known to the evil spiritual rulers and authorities the vastness of God's creative wisdom. He not only created the universe with its endless variety, but in a wholly surprising way, mystery revealed, he has also begun to restore the crowning achievement of his creation, humanity, to its original unity. And that kind of unity can only come from outside this world. It is divine in its origin. And it's divine in its execution. And the question is, will the people who are following the divine one actually step up and execute it? This is why Jesus prays to the Heavenly Father for the future unity of all of His disciples. Because the believability, the specialness, the holiness and uniqueness of the gospel is at stake. In John 17, on the night before his crucifixion, he prayed to the Heavenly Father on behalf of his disciples and all future generations of disciples, which includes us, and he said this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world might believe that you sent me. In apologetics courses, that needs to be a whole unit. Unity. Reconciliation. How people get along or whether they do. Jesus, he didn't talk about fossils right here. <laughs> There's nothing in here on fossils. And all the other stuff. He does talk about something that we can do a lot about. And that is change from our hearts out the way we relate to people, especially those we regard as different. Huh? Are you tough enough to love? You gotta be tough to love. You gotta tell a whole lot of people, no, uh -uh, I, ain't, I ain't doing that. That's ugly and it's the same old, same old with religious patina on it. And I can see right through that. And I, I'm looking through the lens of the gospel. We are pointing as God's new humanity to a coming world Yet under the grip of strife and chaos sowing cosmic powers, but we're pointing beyond that to a different possibility, one that anticipates the oneness of all God's humanity and everything God made in eternity. Revelation 5, they sang a new song. This is a view of eternity, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you, by your blood, ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The church is one, God's one new humanity. So that's what we've been talking about. We can see this in the first half of Ephesians. 
That's kind of what we surveyed today. That's what we are, whether we appreciate it or not. We are that new humanity. Next week, probably send out an email and do it interactively for next week. We're going to talk about, okay, that's what we are. Now how do we act? That's chapter 4 through 6, which begins with this injunction, this urging on Paul's part for us to take unity seriously and understand how central it is. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing next week. Thank you for your attention. Um, there may be somebody here today we haven't talked much about becoming a Christian, but you can see that the story of God, the whole point is, is to invite everyone, regardless of, of who you are or where you come from, the gospel is the ultimate, ultimate you know, sort of leveling thing because it says all of us are sinners and fa have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet all of us can be redeemed. The Jew first and also to the, uh, to the Greek, the gospel was preached. Nothing is more democratic or every person than that. So if that applies to you, you want to study about it, pray together, maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ for remission of your sins and become a part of that, um, we want to help you do that. We're just people trying to find our way by following the Word of God as best we can. So let us know by coming to the front while together we all stand and sing.